we've got to make sure that um, when we're looking at how to fund that we are funding things that deserve a chance. We've been previously funded as a project grantee. This year, the grassroots funds that we were just granted, um, the check of which I picked up today, was the first time that we've been given monies for operational funds. Welcome back to Arts Across NC. Today, we're talking all about DEAI strategies for grant making. The voice you just heard was Atiba Berkeley, president of the Piedmont Blues Preservation Society. PBPS is a well-established volunteer-led arts organization with a mission related to Black arts and culture. Recent changes in Greensboro have made a significant impact on their access to grant funding. At the North Carolina Arts Council, diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion are essential to who we are. Our commitment to these values is steadfast. It is at the heart of our mission, Arts for All People. We believe that the arts in the state are enriched when voices representing all people are respected, heard, acknowledged, and exhibited. Today, I'll be speaking with Laura Way, president and CEO of Arts Greensboro. After a national search that attracted candidates from across the United States, in 2019, Laura joined Arts Greensboro, one of our state's local arts councils, and immediately began implementing changes. North Carolina has one of the most highly developed networks of local arts councils in the country. For over half a century, we have provided funding and technical assistance to encourage arts organizations to deliver multiple ways to broaden, deepen, and diversify participation in the arts and local communities. The larger local arts councils in the state are grant makers providing grassroots art funds along with additional sources of funding to support and strengthen arts activities in their counties. Laura's previous experience as executive director of Green Hill, a funded partner of Arts Greensboro, gave her a unique outsider perspective. She was well aware of the inequities in grant funding and was committed to implementing change. Her commitment to DEAI work began earlier in her career, but during the pandemic, Laura and her staff took that commitment to a new level by redistributing grant funds with the goal of addressing structural inequities and increasing philanthropic overall support for BIPOC artists and arts organizations. Hi, my name is Laura Way. I'm the president and CEO of Arts Greensboro. Hi, Laura. I'm so happy to be talking with you today. Oh, I am so glad to be here. So I see that you have a ton of experience in the arts sector. And so can you give me an overview of your experience as an arts administrator? My experience as an arts administrator started in 2000 when I first came to North Carolina to be the director of finance and operations at Penland School of Crafts. Before that, I was an accountant, worked in higher education and basic science research. So my first real exposure to um, arts administration was up 51 miles in the middle of nowhere, as Jean McLaughlin, the director there, used to say. Uh, But it was this rich, fertile ground of creativity and artists and community. It was a phenomenal place to be. So tell me a little bit about what attracted you to the position at Arts Greensboro and what your specific title and responsibilities are. What attracted me to the job here at Arts Greensboro was a a few different factors. One, I had been the executive director at Green Hill Center for North Carolina Art for almost 10 years. And uh, we had been through, when I first moved to Greensboro, Jeannie Duncan was the executive director or the president here at Arts Greensboro, then Tom Fillion. And 
So I saw the organization evolve and change over those 10 years. And as a, as a grantee of the organization, I felt that I knew and understood the role of the Arts Council and what role the Arts Council could play if we reimagined how we intersect with our community. So when I came on board, actually, two people called me up and invited me to apply. Um, one was uh, Nancy Hoffman, who is a city council member, and the other was Jackie Gilliam. They both led up the cultural arts master planning process in Greensboro. And they essentially said, put your money where your mouth is. Um, you want to affect change. Here's a position where you can affect change. So I came in and um, talked to the board and the staff and said, in my estimation, we need to move out of the presenting and programming space and really lean into the service side of our organization, supporting artists, arts organizations, building a, a strong network of collaboration, and then serving our entire community in meaningful, profound ways. Let's talk about that. Share with me a little bit of the changes that have been implemented since you started your tenure at Arts Greensboro. Well, first, the North Carolina Folk Festival was under the umbrella of, of Arts Greensboro, and it is an incredible organization. But when it was embedded in Arts Greensboro, it was like there was a conflict between what we were trying to do for our arts community and what we were doing for that one particular organization. So they rolled out to become their own nonprofit, and they are thriving. It is an incredible organization. So having the Folk Festival roll out was a, a big step forward. And then we started um, thinking about how we make our grants and to whom our grants are made. And we we did a little bit of a, a data dive, and we the data really pointed to that we had been our support for organizations had decreased over the years. That number one, that was a function of not a full recovery from the recession of two thousand seven, eight, and nine. And partly because we were doing things internally as programmers and promoters. Um, so those two things combined decreased the amount of uh, funds we were making in grants to our community. And then, then we looked at who was receiving the lion's share of those grants. And it was a, a small subset of the entire arts organization community. And then we had to look at why, why was that? And part of it was, um, what every arts council across the country has faced, there are cornerstone organizations that many times arts councils were were formed specifically um, so that those organizations could be uh, supported. And over time, that model really never was reevaluated for equity, not just at Arts Greensboro, but across the country and across the North Carolina. So we did that. We looked at who was getting our grants? What was the sort of underlying premise of why one organization uh, should receive a larger percentage of our grant pool than another? And then we did a task force and we talked to our grantees and um, that we knew that there we needed to open it up to a broader swath. And um, so that was where we were going. And then the pandemic hit. So that shifted how we made grants and we've been really focused on getting organizations up and running or, and or last year really keeping their doors open. But then the other side of it is 
um, supporting an organization is not just money. It is time and resources. So we developed a, a um, shared services model for our organizations where you can need financial reporting, cash flow rejections, budget, uh, someone to report to your board. We offer that as a added on bonus service at $40 an hour. And we now have nine organizations we support that way. We are just now beginning the conversation around HR support for organizations. So you can support an organization above the line or below the line. So we are looking at below the line. And then we really looked at our organizations of color and evaluated what their budget size, how much money they had been receiving, and why had they not been able to grow and successfully thrive in this ever-changing environment. And part of it was the lack of access to operating funds. So we shifted our grassroots grant program to really support organizations of color and provide operating support wherever possible, rather than the model that we used to employ, which was um, making grants to organizations who then in turn would hire artists of color to uh, provide performances or do, you know, a special exhibition. Um, that that was a, like a transactional type of uh, environment. We wanted to be more intentional around supporting the capacity of organizations so they could grow and thrive. What would you say is the value of being an organization that embraces diversity, equity, accessibility, and inclusion practices? It changes the way you look at everything you do, everything. You need to look at your staff. Is your staff reflective of the community you're serving? Does your board represent a broader swath of our community? Do the organizations that we support, are they representing the community? And most importantly, what is the composition of our community? And are we serving them? Are we meeting our community where they're at and offering them meaningful opportunities to have experiences in the arts that are authentic and real to them? It really does change everything. So in March of 2020, the pandemic hit and it it disrupted everything we knew about our life, our world, how we operate, and it had a devastating impact on North Carolina's art sector. So what challenges did the pandemic bring to your organization? I actually think of the pandemic as offering an opportunity to do things differently. Of course, the uncertainty of March, April, and May was it was devastating. It had an emotional, psychological toll on everyone. What do you do? How do you how do you do it? So we did grapple with those questions. But the opportunity was it allowed us to lean in right at the very beginning. Just as the governor was shutting down the state, we raised $100,000, and all of that money went out to our artists because those are the ones who were most impacted immediately. So that was an opportunity for us that we would not have been able to do prior to the pandemic. And so many people leaned in and made donations, $5, or somebody gave us a gift of $25,000. We had no idea who it was. The check came from New York. We don't know where, why, or how they got that word. That was one concrete thing we did right away. And then of course, helping people understand and organizations understand what were their opportunities, the PPP, SBA loans. Uh, the United Way had uh, an emergency fund for organizations. 
the uh, Piedmont Business Capital made loans, low interest loans available to organizations, particularly organizations of color. So we gathered all those resources and had weekly phone calls to say, here's what's available to you. And then we went to the county commissioners. And Kay Cashin has always been our advocate. She's an advocate for the arts. She is the county commissioner at large in Guilford County. And we asked them for CARES funding. And they made it available. They made $700,000 total available, $500,000 as the first grant pool. And then at the end of 2020, they made an additional uh, $200,000 available. And then we worked seamlessly with the county to figure out what were the restrictions around CARES funding and how could we best facilitate getting that money into organizations' hands so they could keep their doors open, that they could pay their staff, and that they could figure out how to move from a live-based platform to virtual so that they could continue to give back to their community in terms of art experiences. In addition to securing federal CARES money from Guilford County, Arts Greensboro received CARES funding from the state when the General Assembly awarded $9.4 million to the North Carolina Arts Council to distribute as relief to the arts sector. The money was distributed on a per capita basis to reimburse arts organizations for business expenses incurred during the pandemic. While the infusion of money was extraordinarily helpful, many local arts councils discovered that the rules for the $9.4 million made it difficult to give grants to folks who needed it most. I asked Laura to tell me about the policies and practices she put into place to overcome that obstacle. Well, CARES funding in and of itself was very restrictive. It was a a reimbursement model. So you had to have incurred the cost and, and CARES funding would reimburse you. So the CARES model itself was not equitable. Because if you were a small organization and you just shut down, you had no option but to shut down. Even emerging, you had no cash flow, you, you, you didn't have enough money to get through the PPP process, and you shut down, well, you didn't have any reimbursable expenses. And that's what the CARES model did. It reimbursed you. So when the State Arts Council made CARES funding available across the state of North Carolina, they gave the Arts Councils opportunities to hold back some of those fundings. So we did that. We held back $280-some-thousand out of the 611 that was made available to Arts Greensboro for Guilford County, and we reimbursed ourselves. But that reimbursement model meant we freed up other assets. And we used those other assets, a $300,000 pool, and we made grants to organizations that was not based on a reimbursement model. It was based on how do I come back out of this pandemic? And of course, back then we thought that would be, you know, February of 21. No one had a crystal ball, but we did not expect we would still be wearing masks today. But so we made grants available to organizations that had not been able to access the traditional CARES funding. And that that just made everything, it changed something fundamental in how we operated. It made us think about the equity in not only who has access, but what are the requirements that are being put forth that that impede your ability to build your capital to be sustainable. And at the end of the day, cash is king. 
you cannot drive your mission. You cannot meet your community where it's at. You cannot serve your artist or your audience. So we really looked at that and said, let's use this, these excess funds that we had available as a grant pool. Let's serve some of the organizations that have not been served through this pandemic. And now we're looking at everything we're doing through that lens. What barriers are we putting in place that are, is stopping someone from having access to funds from Arts Greensboro when they are doing meaningful, important work that is of, of high caliber and is reflective and responsive to the community they're serving? So tell me a little bit about those barriers. What would stop an organization from being able to achieve a large amount of funds that will help their organization thrive? I could give you a few examples. First, if you're a small volunteer-based organization and you have a 10-page grant application and you have another job or you have a family and you are trying to juggle running an organization maybe providing the creative content as well, taking care of your family and having a a full-time job elsewhere, where do you find the 10, 12, 15, 20 hours it takes to fill an application? That is a huge barrier to funding. And it's not just the Arts Council. That's, you know, funders across the the spectrum. That was number one. Two, are we asking for data and in inputs to an application that are not reasonably accessible to organizations? Are we asking for things that we may never actually use, but it's just because it's it's what we've always done? So we have to think about our applications through that process. The next thing is, who's reviewing our grants and what lens are they bringing to that review process? What inherent biases or implicit biases are being employed that we haven't had a a conversation with that panel to ask them to sort of do a self-check to make sure that we are not reviewing grants through a lens that is primarily Eurocentric, but maybe even different than that. Maybe they're used to organizations that are more formalized and a little less fluid as a volunteer-based or a very small organization's operations tend to be. So that's part of it. And then the other part is, are we looking at creative practice and artistic merit through a lens that is inclusive? Or are we using a paradigm that has been employed for 50, 60 years that does not necessarily understand that art evolves, changes, and grows? And Merit is merit. Artistic merit is artistic merit, but within the context of what's being produced and presented, it's not necessarily a rubric that is easily checked. So we need to constantly evaluate what is it organizations and artists are doing, and is there that external expertise that can bring a lens of this is good quality work or this is a high has a high artistic merit and they're speaking from a perspective of knowledge, not, not their own personal belief system. The Piedmont Blues Preservation Society is a volunteer run nonprofit that preserves and presents music commonly known as the blues. The organization is 36 years old and based in Greensboro, North Carolina. According to their mission statement, the society strives to document and preserve both the Black American and North Carolina blues tradition. 
They present educational and music programs, seminars, and workshops to revive interest in blues music. I spoke with Atiba Berkeley about his organization's experience with funding and the progress that has been made. It's good to be with you here today, Atiba. I would love for you to speak about your experience applying for grants through Arts Greensboro and how your organization has been impacted now that there has been an intentional focus to invest in BIPOC organizations. So about 18 months uh, before the pandemic, I became, you know, leader of this group and um, was kind of sorting things out, analyzing um, and looking at how do we make money? How do we, you know, get everything done? How do we, you know, stay funded? And we had been receiving project grants from Arts Greensboro and have been slowly able by using, you know, proper nonprofit management to, you know, increase our grants and show uh, show and demonstrate the worth of the work and the execution of the work. One problem we were having is we want to grow and we didn't have the infrastructure for that. So we needed to look at how we can get more funding. And we were having conversations. Um, the year of the pandemic was also referred to by many as the year of George Floyd. And those conversations that were happening here in the streets and here um, among the arts community were really big. I know murals were going up and one of the biggest points of contention was, you know, murals were being seen as an opportunity for artists and not necessarily just black artists to show their work instead of supporting a cause. Um, and that was a interesting conversation that happened here as well. So um, we kind of just participated. We've been approached by Arts Greensboro since we're already funded through their project grants to um, participate in conversations and you know, be honest about what was going on and where we saw the need for equity. And we started sharing about the different ways that, you know, it was difficult for us to get funded. Um, people in um, the, the year of George Floyd were throwing around a lot of money at black institutions and organizations to help and um, in some cases to save face. But either way, our organization was finding that we were not we were having trouble being funded despite the long legacy of work. That ended up looking like us making commentary about the fact that, you know, we're a black art form, and I happen to be the first African-American leader of our group. Um, without an African-American leader, our group wasn't considered BIPOC, um, so we weren't eligible for that funding. Um, as a volunteer-run institution for 36 years, even though we've been doing the work and have this legacy, we were not able to um, be funded because we didn't have staff. So the lack of us having like what they call a full-time equivalent uh, was preventative for us or restrictive for us from getting grants. And none of that made sense. It doesn't feel equitable. Like if we're all doing this work for black culture, why can't we get more funding in different ways to help us grow and sustain? So those are kind of how the conversation started. And um, things were done along the way um, to help. We had to cancel our festival in May. We had already been cut our grant check for the project grant. Um, so they said, well, you can return the grant if you want. Um, no issues. And we really didn't want to. We didn't want to um, let our patrons down, our members. And we knew that we needed connection when we were facing such a serious crisis. So they gave a, they granted us an extension, which is one way that they showed equity, um, granted us an extension. They also absorbed the fees for um, our use of a indoor space, like our change of venue, 
Um, so we were allowed to use the Van Dyke space that was under Arts Green Squirrels control. Um, and I was able to turn it into a six camera television studio and we streamed live for three hours. <laughs> um, so we were still able to do our presentation and people could join from home. Um, but we wanted to do it live. Um, that was key for us in maintaining our legacy of always doing our live festival each year. And it, it was really great. We also um, were able to partner with the North Carolina Folk Festival um, and have some virtual content inside their event. When it was time for us to stream, YouTube actually threw us a curveball and wouldn't let our page stream. But because of our partnership with the Folk Festival and Arts Greensboro, we were able to actually use their website to stream our concert on time. And so those are some of the ways that, you know, equity came about. So in 36 years of the organization being ran, they never received operational support from a large grant funding group, right? Yeah. So t- talk to me a little bit about um, the process of applying for this operational grant um, and how it's going to impact your organization. For us, especially in this year and in this kind of new season, uh, it's really it's really good. Um, we came back from the pandemic at our festival, but we had started looking before the pandemic, before George Floyd did anything, at equity um, for our organization and growing. So to do that, we realized, like, we were no longer sustainable as a membership-based club. We had our nonprofit status, but we really needed to be a nonprofit operating as a nonprofit business. Um, so we started that process, and when it came to the grants, it was a situation where without having staff, um, we weren't going to be able to move forward and grow. Um, we weren't going to be able to maintain our archives or institutional knowledge, um, and we weren't going to be able to continue to support community the same way. Like We were going to fade. The end result is we ended up getting new offices. We moved from a one-room office on the fifth floor of the self-help building to – on the sixth floor, to the fifth floor, to 700 square feet, four rooms, and a reception area. And we were able to hire an admin assistant and hire a social part-time and hire a social media person part-time. But though, And we hired a um, consultant for organizational development um, to help us really transition and look at how that would work best for us as a largely volunteer-based labor group as a um, nonprofit, as an African-American culture nonprofit. Um, it was really important that we took all of those into consideration and how we did it, and we had an opportunity to build it differently. So the board had faith in the plan um, and did a lot of the work uh, with the consultant, and we were able to move into the office. And um, those moves that we made on our own, along with the work and support of Arts Greens World, because, like, Laura will tell you, I'll call her in a minute and be like, hey, Laura, um, I'm looking at this grant, and I don't understand this term. You know, I come from corporate. I'm not what most people would call a nonprofit professional. I'm gaining ground quickly. Um, I am a leader. I'm a business manager, so I can look at the numbers. I can analyze. But the nonprofit infrastructure, um, fundraising systems and stuff like that are different. You know, I definitely come from more of a personnel management, tech management background. So, um having to pick that stuff up um, and get support. Our Greensboro paid for us to have a membership to the Guilford Nonprofit Consortium, which gave us access to continuous training. Uh, I was able to participate in the Board Development Academy, and it's like a six- or eight-week training session. 
um, pretty intensive um, and go through all sorts of things, made some relationships, introduced us to some different professionals and allowed us to ask questions of attorneys, of executive directors, of CPAs that deal with nonprofits so that we can really understand how a 990 works, the difference between earned revenue and fundraising. Those made us have key changes to how we're operating, you know, that, that do help us be more grant eligible. This year, the longest running blues festival in the southeastern United States, presented by Piedmont Blues, returns for its 36th year on May 21st at LaBauer Park. The theme, Young Black and Blues. Be sure to visit their website at www.piedmontblues.org for additional information. In an article titled, How We Can Advance Support for Racial Equity and Racial Justice Funding, Lori Villarosa, founder and executive director of the Philanthropic Initiative for Racial Equity, points out that grants management professionals are strategically positioned to influence a funder's racial equity and racial justice funding. However, longstanding tensions driven by unequal power dynamics have shaped debates over how racial equity and racial justice are defined and who does the defining. Villarosa also reminds us that there has often been little shared understanding of these terms. Although the work isn't magically completed, Arts Greensboro transformed grant-making practices with the goal of charting a better way forward. Laura and I finished our conversation by focusing on the joy and the impact driving equity brought her grantees. So Laura, once the large pot of money was able to be distributed into the community to those organizations that were often excluded or often left out because of barriers, what did you notice? I noticed a lot of joy, actually. I noticed a lot of joy from organizations that came to us and said, we have never received operating support. We have never had someone take a risk on us beyond a one-off performance or a one-off project. And what the other thing I noticed is it brought them into to a community of organizations that they had a seat at the table that previously they may have felt that that table was not set for them. And that makes a difference. It empowered them and it emboldened them to ask for things they needed. You know, we can't meet every need, but we certainly can lend an ear to help understand what the needs are or direct organizations and artists to the places where resources could be more more readily available to them. And then it also gave us a different narrative around who's in this arts community, who are we serving? Um, Of course, we're serving our cornerstone organizations and always would want to serve those organizations. But when we looked around us, it gave us vocabulary that we had not had before around what is happening in our community and where value is being driven. One of the things that we learned early on when we started expanding who would be eligible to receive a grant from Arts Greensboro was there was a lack of education in how to actually apply for a grant. So, you know, a minute ago I talked about unintended barriers when the application process is so onerous. But there's also an educational process that goes along with writing an effective grant. And writing an effective case statement, in many ways a grant is a case case statement for support. And when we started really working with organizations that were not as experienced in grant writing, we saw some deficits in their ability to articulate their goals, their outcomes, how how 
they would measure their results, who their audience was. And then sometimes there was a, a misalignment around how much money we could grant and what they could achieve. They were very aspirational and we wanted them to be, we want them to be aspirational, but realistic. We don't want to set them up to fail. So the first year we, after going through the review process with a very um, qualified panel with a lot of different perspectives, we realized we needed to give some coaching to these organizations. So we made a commitment to fund and then we assigned coaches and paid for them to work with a, a key set of organizations so that they refined what their goals and objectives were for this funding pool, how they were going to measure it, what necessary steps they needed to take to realize good outcomes, and then check in with these coaches during the course of the grant period to make sure they were making progress, if they had to recalibrate why, and then get be prepared for a final report. This has been a process. It's a learning process all the way around. But I think that was something that was really helpful, that we then learned that capacity to do this is something that we need to build into our um, our our work product, that Arts Greensboro always needs to be able to help organizations develop that capacity so that they can be that sustainable, articulate organization that can make a case for support. And from this process is where we came up with the model around developing a cohort of organizations that had previously not had the exposure, the opportunity, or the capacity to grow and thrive. So we said if we, as a pilot, and talking a lot to the State Arts Council, if we made available a pool of funds that provided a baseline level of support and that there was opportunity for peer-to-peer coaching, professional development, um, good, strong financial reporting and, and education, board development, a liquidity, uh, learning how to develop your, your cash flow model to build liquidity. If we brought all these um, opportunities to these organizations, would they grow and thrive? And after a period of a number of years, this cohort, would they then become the mentor to the next organization and build a generational network of organizations supporting organizations around growth, capacity, and impact. And so that's where we are starting our cohort, making sure that it's a group that is really aligned around what they want to achieve. We're not their boss. We're their partner in this. And it will take years, but it can be done with with real intentional planning, cooperation, collaboration, and empathy. That sounds amazing, and it sounds like it is going to be impactful. Um, and also, it gives Arts Greensboro an opportunity to serve as a role model or a model to other arts organizations. And so are you guys thinking about that as you are making this decision that the choices that you have made, the restructuring of the funding practices, the restructuring of investing and taking risks in BIPOC organizations that you can potentially be aspiring to other organizations? I think the 
the steps that we've taken over the last 18 months, and particularly around organizations of color and building capacity and really getting to know your community, is, is something that is translatable, regardless of what sector you are or what size organization. I say this all the time. Silos are very easy to build. They're relatively easy to maintain. You can take care of your own silo, and you're fine. But silos poison the ground around it. They they take the nutrients out of that ground for something more valuable to grow and thrive. So what this cohort model is doing, in a way, is saying you don't have to be a silo. We can we can build this fertile field. And I'm hoping that through this process, others looking at us, whether they're funders or funded organizations, say, you know what? I am not in this alone. I have three organizations that have such synergy. Why am I building a silo when I could be building a, a, a field that could nurture and build and, and take care of bees and wildflowers and our community? So I do hope that through this process, we are demonstrating leadership. And this comes from the board down to every staff member and volunteer and intern at Arts Greensboro. It's not just Laura Way and, and her small team. It's all of us. At the end of the day, we need to demonstrate in the arts that the arts drive impact. If everyone's looking and holding on tight to what they have, it, there's no multiplier effect. We need a multiplier effect. So let's think about cooperation and collaboration in brand new ways. And we will lead by example through that. I don't know the word to describe it, but there's something special about the fact that all of this has happened in the midst of a pandemic. And though the pandemic has presented us with opportunities to rethink about the way that we work, you know, we have this like teleworking opportunity, um, rethink the way that we meet. We're able to use technologies like such as Zoom and stuff. The pandemic has also been a dark moment for many, right? Um, and so tell me about moments of joy that you have experienced or that Arts Greensboro have experienced doing this work, like doing groundwork and diversity and equity. Over the last 18 months, I have been graced. I like that word, graced. I've been graced with stories and people coming to me and saying, I didn't know Greensboro had so many artists, or I didn't know how creative we were, or organizations coming to me and saying, I want to I do things differently. How can we join you in doing things differently? I mean, not necessarily organizations in the arts, but other organizations that are doing something similar in a different sector. But when we talk to the Chamber of Commerce, we talk about equity and arts and, and why it's important to have a seat at the table. And they're beginning to hear this. When we talk about arts and communities and how you need to go and sit down with that community and be very intentional and not go in with a position of, I'm going to do something for you. You should never do something for or to someone. You should do something with someone. And so when we go in and do do something with the community, the level of grace and forgiveness around mistakes that we may have made or mistakes I may have made has been incredibly inspiring. And the people I have gotten to meet who call me up and say, I want to talk to you about what you're doing, how I can help or 
you know, this is what I'm thinking. Will you listen to me? And I say yes. That's inspiring because I have the time to listen to someone else's story because I will be better for it. Um, so I have a lot of inspiration. I know my team gets the exact same thing. I get a lot of gratitude from our donors and supporters. So, um, and then we're recognized um, for doing this work. And it's nice to be recognized, but it's not the be-all, end-all. It's serving our community. It's the real gift to this work. Thank you so much for talking with me today, Laura. Oh, I had so much fun. I love talking about what we're doing. You know, the State Arts Council is a role model to me. All of you are committed and you do some incredible work. This is a time of change and, you know, there's no time like the present to change and get better. Across the country, grants and organizations are reevaluating their policies and procedures to address historic inequities. Funders are reducing matching requirements, allowing for expanded use of fiscal agents, and strengthening their communication and outreach to recruit new applicants. Nationally, there is a significant trend towards providing operating funds to arts groups that would have only qualified for project grants in the past. Arts Greensboro and the North Carolina Arts Council are two grant makers committed to these types of changes. These specific DEAI efforts have influenced many others in the state to take similar steps. I'm your host, Kaisha Jennings. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Arts Across NC, a podcast by and about the North Carolina Arts Council. A huge thanks to our special projects coordinator, Sam Gurick, for handling audio production. The original music you've been hearing is by local hip-hop producer Millie Vaughn. Make sure to visit us at ncarts.org slash podcast and follow us on your favorite podcast app so that you don't miss our next episode. See you next Friday.